Uh, we're here for a communion meditation this morning, and uh, communion is, is truly a remembrance of Christ's passion. And when we think of Christ's passion, we generally, naturally, we think of the cross. Um, Henry Millman, he wrote a poem speaking of the substance of the cross, and I want to read that to you this morning. Bound upon the accursed tree, faint and blessing, who is he? By the eyes so pale and dim, streaming blood and writhing limb. By the flesh with scourges torn, by the crown of twisted thorn. By the side so deeply pierced, by the baffled burning thirst. By the drooping death-dewed brow, son of man, tis thou, tis thou. Today I want to speak of the cross but I don't want to speak of the symbol of the cross. I want to speak of the substance of the cross, the event of the cross. We often see the symbol and we neglect the substance. We have the the icon and we miss the meaning. If we were to ask somebody in a store wearing a cross on their neck and ask them, are you a Christian or why are you wearing that? They might say, well, it's a very nice piece of jewelry, and it, it, it really symbolizes something special. And every religion has a symbol. Uh, the ancient Chinese and those in India use the lotus flower to symbolize Buddhism. The Is- Islam, they have a crescent that they, they adopted from the Byzantine Empire when they conquered it. Uh, the Jews, they didn't have a visible symbol that we could see Later on, they, they, they did adopt the, the Star of David, but at first they didn't do that because the second commandment says that you shall not make any uh, graven images of God. So they neglect, neglected that, but the, the Star of David is two, two equal lateral triangles overlapping each other, which I think symbolizes the covenant that God made with David. Um, but then we come to Christianity, if I asked somebody what the symbol of Christianity was, they'd, they'd probably tell me it was the cross. But originally it was not the cross. Um, originally, and from what archaeology has taught us, um, we surmise that it was probably a peacock to begin with. And uh, later it was changed to a dove. And later than that, it went to a palm branch. The early church would have been appalled at using the symbol of a cross as the symbol of our Christianity. Because the symbol of the cross is torture, it means shame, it's execution and death. The very early Christians, they, they would have just rejected that completely. It was, it was later in Rome, during the Roman Empire, when they adopted the, the symbol of the fish. And I'm sure we're all familiar with, with that. I actually have a couple of them on the back of my car. Um, that comes from an acrostic, which is a literary device that means every letter of the word has a different meaning or a different phrase. Some of the Psalms use acrostics, actually. The Greek word for fish is ixthis. Uh, each letter of the word meant a different word. Uh, ixthis, uh, I-C-H-T-H-Y-S is the English transliteration. Eus Christos Theo Huyo Soter. In English that would be 
Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And the reason they did this is because they were being persecuted by the Romans and the Christians wanted a sign that they could have visibly that they could be identified as believers to other believers. In the world, I'm talking about the, the world outside of the church's doors. Whether it's as a symbol or whether it's as the substance, the cross is absurd. Paul said, in the, said of the cross, he said it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. And think about that. No other religion has at its core the humiliation of its God except Christianity. Our glory is the cross, not the symbol, but the substance, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate this, but we celebrate it from God's point of view, not from man's point of view. From man's point of view, it's a means used to kill Jesus. But from God's point of view, it was the plan that was enacted through the ages. I want to walk backwards, and I want to look at this plan this morning. Peter in Acts 2 said the cross was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So I want to begin with the life of Jesus. Open your Bibles. Chapter 16 of Matthew is where I want to begin. Jesus, while he was alive, he predicted his own death. Uh, It wasn't sprung upon him, and it wasn't new news to him. Uh, He knew exactly what was going to happen. And can you imagine living your life like that? Can you imagine knowing when you were going to die? I, I think that we would probably live our lives differently in that case. Well, looking at Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in verse 22, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Imagine that, rebuking God. Well, Peter had good intentions. He didn't want Jesus to die. But he wasn't prepared for what Jesus said to him after that. Verse 23, it says that he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, Jesus was always moving toward the cross, and there was nothing that was going to dissuade him from that. Um, in Matthew, again, verse, uh, chapter 17 now, in verse 22, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This happened several times. Jesus is continually speaking about his own death. And I can see that him doing this, he viewed his death, he he viewed it through his life. It's fascinating to me. And not only did he predict that he would die, but he also predicted how he would die. Jesus told Nicodemus and John that as Moses was lifted up, 
or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in Matthew, he also said that, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He knew what was going to happen to him explicitly. Jesus spoke continually of the cross. He also knew not only how it was going to happen, he knew when it was going to happen. I've spoken of this in the past, but he also spoke of his hour. Seven times in the New Testament he speaks of this. Remember when he was at the, the wedding with his parents, his mother at least, in Cana, and she asked him to make wine. What did he tell her? He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then there are the Pharisees. When they were looking to arrest him, he says, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again in the garden, when he turns to his disciples and says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, have I come to this hour? It was his time element, his hour that his life was focused on. And he would not be distracted from it. Anything that tried to distract him, he considered it evil. This is why he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What Jesus was rebuking wasn't Peter. He was rebuking a philosophy that he had heard before. Back when he was in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, Satan came to him and said, if you just bow down and worship me, if, if, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. He said, I know why you're, that's Satan saying, I know why you're here. Uh, you've come to purchase the world back to God. But if you just give me the glory, bow down to me, worship me, it's all yours. You don't have to go to the cross. And that is the temptation. You don't have to die. Jesus has heard this philosophy, philosophy before from that time when Peter said, you don't have to die, we'll protect you. But Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because it would deter him from the hour for which he had come. And isn't it interesting that Satan himself recognizes the importance of the cross. While many confine it to a piece of jewelry or an icon on a building, we, many Christians themselves, when you, when you speak of the cross to them, they say, yeah, that's, that's neat. Jesus died on it. We know that. It's very orthodox. But let's move on to something more deep. Let's talk about something a little more meaty, something deeper. But Satan himself recognizes the importance of the cross. Oswald Chambers reminds us of this, saying, All of heaven is interested in the cross. All of hell is terribly afraid of it. While men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. But there are some of those in the church today, they want to minimize it. They don't want to mention the cross. They don't want to talk about the blood of the cross. They don't want to sing about that in their hymns. And to be honest, our own hymnal shows evidence of this. 
Um, hymn 186. If you want to turn there, when you get a chance, you can look at this. Um, when I Survey the Wondrous Cross by Isaac Watts, one of my favorites. We see that there are four stanzas in that song, in that hymn. Originally, there were five. There's one missing. That one is missing. I'll read that to you. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Well, that stanza was actually removed back in 1757 because the picture of Jesus bathed in blood, which like a robe spreads over the tree, is so striking, so startling, that it becomes almost revolting. So they removed it. But plainly, Watts intended it to be so. Interestingly, when Paul wrote Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, and that's the song, that's the, 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 the passage the wondrous cross is written from, when Paul wrote that, crucifixion was considered so horrible, so loathsome, that the Latin word for cross, the crooks, it was considered unmentionable in polite Roman society. Then, as today, many see the cross as being very negative. But it's not. It's the most positive thing in the world. Because it means our salvation. And that's why Satan tried to tempt Jesus from it. But let's go back a little further to find the cross. That's what Jesus was saying about his own death. Let's go to John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, and Luke depict the very first meeting of Jesus and John the Baptist on the Jordan. The Gospel of John records what appears to be the second meeting of them on the Jordan. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He knew that he was called to be the forerunner of the promised Messiah, to usher in his coming. He knew that what the prophecy said, and he knew what they were expecting the Messiah to be. Uh, he's read the book of Isaiah. He probably knew it backwards and forwards. Uh, he, in fact, he even said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist knew the Messiah was coming and understood him as the Old Testament Israelites understood him, as a conqueror to free them from the Roman oppression. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist's first message is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he continues down in verse 7 saying, You brood of vipers, which I believe is a reference to Genesis 3. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then in verse 12, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. These are all messages of judgment. Uh, the Messiah is coming. He's going to bring his wrath. He will judge, the, and judge and rule over the earth. And all that is true, but none of that happens until his second coming. But there are some things that happen to John the Baptist at the Jordan River during that time. And the first thing that happened to him is that 
Jesus came to him to be baptized, which didn't seem right to him. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus told him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, Here, Jesus is standing with sinners and identifying with them. And this was probably the first clue that John the Baptist had of the revelation that he was going to get. Well, the second clue came after the baptism of Jesus. It said, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit alighted upon him in the form of a dove. And from our perspective, this makes complete sense. We understand the dove represents the Holy Spirit, but from the perspective of the Jewish mind, mind, the perspective of John the Baptist, he saw a symbol of sacrifice. Poor people would be bringing a pigeon or a dove to the temple to sacrifice for their sins. If they couldn't afford a larger animal like a lamb or a goat, they were afforded the opportunity to bring a, a dove in place of that. So from John's perspective, he's baptizing people at the the Jordan. Uh, The Messiah shows up to be baptized and an animal sacrifice. The Holy Spirit in that form descends upon Jesus. It's probably not what John had envisioned. Probably not what he was expecting to see. And at at that point, Jesus leaves and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. Satan. But when the, if you go to the Gospel of John, and when, when they meet again, when John the Baptist sees Christ again after this point, he doesn't have a message of judgment. He doesn't say his winnowing fork is in his hand. This time he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist sees Jesus differently now. He doesn't see the the conqueror of Rome, he sees a sacrificial lamb who's going to take away sin. Before this, John only saw the Messiah as, he saw him in the final lens of eschatology, judging the world for their sins, not in the intermediate step of saving the world from their sins. So what happened? Why does his view change? Well, I have my own opinion, and I think it's probably because after he saw the dove descend upon Christ, and he heard the voice of God, and then after Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, he had some time to go back and reread the scriptures. I think he went back and reread Isaiah, reading past the conquering Messiah passages. John probably ended up in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And I think John realized that the Messiah is the one who's going to take care of the sins because the law couldn't. Behold, the Lamb of God is what he says. It's a prediction of the cross. Well, let's go back a little further. Past John the Baptist. Let's go to the the birth 
of Jesus itself. And when Jesus was born, angels showed up to speak to both Mary and Joseph. Uh, this is the first hint of the cross that Joseph gets when he finds out that Mary's pregnant and they're not even married yet. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He's very confused about this and this is very upsetting to him. Um, Matthew 21 says that the angel came to him and he tells him that this is from God, saying, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is a prediction of the cross. He will save his people from their sins. Not he's going to save the, 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 Ro- the, the Jews from the Romans or that he's going to save you from, from negative thoughts or low self-esteem. He will save you from your sins. And Joseph and Mary knew that it was sacrifice that was needed for the forgiveness of sins. But what about Mary going into the temple after Jesus was born, meeting with Simon, telling her that a sword is going to pierce through her own soul? That's prophetic of the death of her baby. Parents have a plan for their children, plans for them to be doctors or lawyers or professional athletes or who knows, maybe even a pastor. But regardless The plans are for the child's life, not its death. We want the child to live. We don't want it to die. That's just not in our thinking. But this was in the mind of God. And it was planted into the mind of Joseph and Mary. And it was confirmed at the birth and after the birth when those magi brought those three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what they brought was not random. They had a purpose. Gold speaks of a king and divinity. Frankincense speaks of a priest. And myrrh, it's an unusual gift. It has a fragrant and bitter smell. And it was essentially used at that time for embalming the dead bodies. That's, again, prophetic of Jesus' death. Incidentally, myrrh is a spice that only gives off its smell when it's been crushed. In Isaiah 53.5 it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So Jesus predicted his own death. John the Baptist predicted his death. The angels and the Magi did so also. But looking back a little further, let's go to the Old Testament, where there are 330 predictions of the coming Messiah. Who he would be, what he would do, what his lineage would be from. So the Jews looked and they waited, but they never thought of the Messiah as someone who would be a suffering person. They always envisioned the conqueror. After he rose from the death, Jesus, or rose from the grave, Jesus told two of his disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The Old Testament predicted where he would be born, that is in Bethlehem, what uh, lineage he would come from, that would be the line of Judah, the line of David, um, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, 
um, and then he would die next to criminals. And Isaiah 53, that I've touched on already a couple of times, is one of the most incredible pieces of scripture that actually describe in detail uh, the suffering, the flogging, the bloodshed, and the death for people. A sacrifice for sin. But there's also Psalm 22. A psalm that begins and ends with the very words that Jesus said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm ends in the Hebrew with the same words Jesus ended his passion with. It is finished. In those two statements of Psalm 22, there's a, between those statements, there's a graphic image of crucifixion. But why is that amazing? Because by the, when this Psalm 22 was written, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. But let's go back even further. Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis. Genesis 22. This is also going to point us to the cross. Remember when, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son? Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is particularly interesting because Abraham didn't have one son. He had two, Ishmael and Isaac. Not only that, but he told him to bring the the son whom you love. This is really interesting because this is the very first time love is mentioned in the Bible. And this, this blew my mind because it's used in the context of a father sacrificing his son, his only beloved son. Well, Genesis 22 goes on and says that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So in Abraham's mind during this time, his son was already dead. He's he's been commanded to go up this mountain, and he's thinking, well, I'm going to take him up the mountain, and I'm going to sacrifice him there. So in his mind, he's already been dead for three days. And then on the third day, the angel comes to him and says, no, Abraham you will not kill him. So, metaphorically, Abraham's son, who was dead in his mind, becomes alive to him once again. Those are hints of what was coming. The prophets, when they predicted all that was going to happen, they themselves were confused. They didn't understand how this was all going to fit together. First Peter, uh, it, it talks about this. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But we can go back a little further. We can go past Genesis verse 1. We can go back before the creations of the heavens and the earth to see the cross. We can go back to the mind of God. Peter writes of this. He says, 
the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Before Jesus became incarnate, the, in eternity past, the Trinity, knowing of the creation, knowing of the fall of man, made a covenant, a covenant of redemption. This is when the cross was predicted, before the foundations of the world. A glimpse of this is seen when Jesus was only 12 years old. During the Passover, when he was in the temple, Mary and Joseph were there searching for him because he didn't go back with them. But after three days, they found him, and he says to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, at 12 years old, Jesus had already a realization that God was his father, but in a unique way. And this was, this was what compelled him to be on this mission, to accomplish this plan. The plan was the cross, the substance of the cross. We've looked back at this plan for this event of the cross, something that was planned before the foundations of the world, but here's what I think is the best part of it all. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. He picked you and knew your name before the foundations of the world. And the event of the cross and we all here this morning are part of that plan. His love is a planned love. And that's something as part of communion that we should also remember. Amen.